when Jacob lay dying perhaps in a chamber of the royal palace in Egypt where he had been transplanted there to preserve the life of the chosen people of God. When he lay there surrounded by his sons and by Joseph who had become the ruler of Egypt second only to the power of Pharaoh, he opened his mouth inspired by the God he loved to prophesy of the day when God would deliver his people and fulfill all of his promises that he had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Perhaps thinking back to the night when as a frightened young man fleeing for his life, at a place called Bethel, as he called it, the house of God, as he lay surrounded by stones that night, using one of them for a pillow. Those stones had figured so prominently in his dreams, he declared that the stone of Israel guaranteed that everything he promised would, be, would come to pass. When Moses had led the children of Israel out of Egypt in uh, fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy. When he had led them through all of the wilderness years and his time had come to be received by his God, as he addressed the people for the last time, he guaranteed them that the rock of Israel could not be broken. When David cried out in despair and God answered his prayer and strengthened him within, he exulted in praise, Thou art my rock, my refuge, my fortress, my high tower. And in these verses that we share this morning from the book of 1 Peter, Peter has gathered together the blessed metaphors about the rock of Israel, the stone that God gave, and put them all together. And in these verses, image piles upon image as metaphor blends into metaphor and thought slides into thought into a pitch of rare magnificence. For he says that on a massive bed of rock, there is a stone a stone which is fitted to bond together all that God wants to do and to guarantee the endurance of the building that God is building. This passage is both doctrinal and practical. For here he tells us the reason why we may count on the Lord and he enumerates some of the beauty and magnificence of God in the Lord Jesus. But then in the latter verses, he turns this foundation stone, this cornerstone to be our motivation and our guarantee that we can and must and should do what God wants us to do with our lives. For Peter says, yes, God is to be studied. We are to understand what God is and all of the things that he has accomplished. But beyond that, he is to be obeyed as we are one day at a time to put into practice the things that God reveals to us through his word and through the presence of his spirit in our lives. In verses 6 to 8, here we see an eternal stone as Peter gathers all of these metaphors together about the stone. In these verses, he quotes Isaiah 28, 16, 
where the prophet there expands on the thought a little more and thus it becomes important for us to consider what Isaiah said also. Isaiah 28, 16 says this, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, or it might be translated a stone of testing, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. He is the cornerstone but also the foundation. And the one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. And so thinking of this stone, we may take it in at least three ways. And the beauty of this illustration that Peter uses is that no matter how we might interpret it, and different men interpret it different ways, all of these alike can be applied equally well to the Lord Jesus. There is the metaphor of the corner stone. And in the ancient world, when buildings were put together in blocks rather than in steel and concrete, at the proper time, a stone fitted uniquely for that place, which had to be hewn to exact specifications to bear the weight of the walls that it supported, and thus the entire structure depended on this one stone being properly in place as it joined the two walls there, making them one and holding the corner and thus the entire structure up. Some commentators believe that this word that we translate cornerstone refers to the keystone in an arch. After all, Peter traveled extensively through the Roman world and the Romans built many arches. And as they built the arches from the ground up of stone, they would support them with scaffolding and with braces on the way up. And when everything else was done, they would have to hew a stone to fit the niche at the top of the arch. And once that stone was in place, the top stone or the keystone of the arch, all of the arch would stand free. And as history has borne out to this very day, some of those stone arches still stand. And so we may apply that to the Lord Jesus. He is the keystone. Without him, nothing at all would stand in the arch that he created would collapse. Then there is the metaphor of the top stone of a pyramid. Some commentators believe that as they considered the magnificence of the pyramids that had dwelt in their region of the earth throughout their history, they were thinking of him, the last stone to be carried by the builders and placed in a position of unparalleled honor for the world around it to see the top stone of the pyramid. And however we take it, all of these apply and speak to us of what the Lord Jesus does for us. The living stone of verse 4 in chapter 2, as he has called him, has become not only the cornerstone but also the foundation. He is called a stone of testing in Isaiah 28, 16. A stone of testing by which all our works and all of our lives and our ministries are to be measured a tested stone or a stone of testing. But you know, I thought as I studied this passage, the beauty of the fact that God says, I lay this stone. And I thought of some within the Christian tradition who fear for the security of their salvations. And then I thought God says, Behold, I lay the foundation. 
And I thought of those who dwell in fear and misery, Christians who do not appropriate the power of God, who are buffeted by life and pushed around by circumstances and defeated and ineffective. And I thought, God says, behold, I lay the stone. And I thought, if God lays it, who can remove it? If God puts the foundation, who can dig under it so that it crumbles away? If God builds the structure and places in the proper place the head of the corner to hold it up, who can tear it down? If God builds the arch and puts the keystone there, who can knock the structure over? If God builds the pyramids and put the top stone in place, who can obscure its view from the world? God said, I lay the stone. I made the foundation. I built the building. And thus he is truly an eternal stone whose effectiveness is guaranteed until God abdicates the throne. There was a persistent legend among the Jews that has come down to us through many of the ancient writings about the building of Solomon's temple. According to this legend, when the temple was finally being constructed, every day the stone workers would send up to the temple site some of the stones that had been prepared in the rock quarry. We read, of course, in the historical books that all of the stones were prepared ahead of time so that there was no hammering or chiseling of the stones. They just set them into place and everyone fit. The legend goes that one day the workmen sent up a stone that the builders of the temple could not use. They thought it very strange. Its size was rather unusual. Its dimensions were different than many of the other stones. And after working on it for the better part of a day, they pushed it down the side of the hill into the Kidron Valley and let it lay, for they could not find a use for that stone. When the temple was nearing completion and they were ready to slip the corner stone into place so that the massive structure would stay upright. They searched and they could not find a stone that would fit. None of them was quite right. The superintendent of the builders sent a messenger to the stone quarry inquiring why they had not received the corner stone. And the message came back, why, sir, many days ago we sent that stone so that you could observe it and plan for it and know exactly where it would go and how you must use it. And the builder began to search and talk to his workers and they finally remembered the stone which by this time in the fertile valley of Kidron had been overgrown by weeds and finally they found it and hauled it back up the hill and slipped it into place and the structure was complete. One of the ancient historians says that this incident was the reason for the quotation that Peter gives us in verse 7. In verse 7, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. And this was literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, whether that story is true or not. 
For Jesus was the stone of God's own making. He was the head of the corner of God's own appointing. And Jesus came to the people. He came to his own, we read in John, and his own received him not. And Jesus himself applied this prophecy to his life. And Peter quotes it, the stone that the builders rejected. This stone has become the very chief or the head of the corner. He is an eternal stone. We need to be reminded that all of the councils of the church through history, that all of the traditions that we have built up, that all of the things we do that somehow through eons of time have gradually taken on in our own minds authority must never be allowed to supersede the authority of God's Word. For it is eternal. It is a foundation stone that will never be replaced. And time honored or not, whatever is done by practice in the life of any church or any Christian that is contrary to the Word of God must be discarded so that God can build the structure of His choice and the stone of His choosing shall become the head of the corner. And in verse 8, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 where Isaiah said, And he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken and be snared and captured. And what Peter is really saying as he quotes Isaiah, gathering these metaphors of the stone is this. Either you will allow the Lord Jesus to be the head of the corner in your life or he will become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to you. Either you will accept him and he will hold your life together as the cornerstone does or stumbling over him unavoidably, you will be punished and separated from God by an eternity in hell. A rock of stumbling, a stone of offense to those who reject him. Peter says they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were appointed. Notice the order that Peter uses. He does not say that God chooses in advance for anybody to be damned to hell. He does not say that. That is an ungodly and unscriptural heresy hatched in hell. What he says rather, those who are disobedient to the word, who refuse to accept Christ as the chief stone of the corner, those stumble over him and become by appointment doomed and separated from God. As the rock, he is like fire. For the fire that warms you if you're in the proper relationship to it will burn it if you get too close. And like a foundation stone, his stability sustains us. His firmness is our help. 
but to those who are in the improper relationship to him. He becomes hard and they, by virtue of their rebellion against God, become broken by the stone. There are three different words in these verses for stone. The one translated cornerstone means the chief stone of the foundation or the corner. The one translated stone in verse 6 is the, is the word lithos. Now, when Jesus said unto Peter, he said, you are Peter, which means a little rock, but upon this great stone a different gender, a similar word, but a different word, I will build my church. He used the word Petra. Here is the word lithos. Now lithos, as opposed to Petra, means a stone that was taken from the quarry and chiseled and hammered and shaped into a perfect shape prepared for a certain place. And there it was put. Now the word Petra, which occurs... In verse 8, a rock of offense means that the rock was not prepared. It was just there. It's just like a rock laying out in the dirt. And so Peter says that God prepared Jesus as the cornerstone, the keystone of the arch, the top stone of the pyramid. He prepared him to meet our needs but no preparation was necessary for those who are disobedient to the word. They will stumble over him. The word Petra is just a large mass of rock that occurs naturally. And however the metaphor is used, the Lord Jesus, depending on our relationship to him, is an eternal stone. And then notice verses 9 and 10. Here is an eternal selection. The stone endures and the power of God to keep his people likewise is enduring. Here is an eternal selection. He says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim his excellencies who has called you out of the darkness into his glorious light. In verse 10, for you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In these verses, Peter quotes Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2 where through the illustration of Hosea's own family, God illustrates how he is related to the people of Israel. One of the children that was born to Hosea was named Lo-Ami because God says these people are not my people anymore. But then he goes on to name one of the further children and says, now they are my people and shall be eternally. Here is an eternal selection. Just as iron, when it touches a magnet, becomes magnetized, so everything that we are, we are by virtue of the fact that our lives have been touched by the Lord Jesus. 
How is it that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people peculiarly for God's own possession because we have come in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ? In Israel, there were three groups of people that had important responsibilities. The priests were in charge of all worship of God. The Levites, who were related to the priest by birth, were in charge of all the service that had to do with the house of God. And the warriors were the king's army to fight the enemies of God. And in this verse, Peter says, the believers have become all of these things. As priests, every man can come before God and worship him. Himself, indeed, we are commanded to do so. As Levites, our servants, every one of us is appointed in God's economy to a task of service to God as the Levites were. And every one of us are members of God's army to carry his message and to be a part of his team in the eternal struggle that goes on in this world. I would have you to remember that in the ancient civilization, the priest had to live by a stricter rule than anybody else did. He was more accountable to God than was anyone else. And so are we in this world. Because we belong to God, our standards must be higher. The world must be able to tell the difference between us and itself. The larger a responsibility we are given, the greater is our accountability. Do you remember how the Lord Jesus said, speaking to certain religious people, to whom much is given, much is required. And Paul in one of his letters discourages a lot of the congregation who were to read the letter from seeking positions of honor and leadership in the church. For he said, I want to give you to understand that when you take the position of leadership, you are doubly accountable to God, more so than if you did not have it. And in the church, in God's economy, every Christian assumes a position of importance. There is a place for everyone. There are no little people. There are no unimportant people in God's work. And there is no one individual in any church that is more important to God than anybody else. Paul uses the illustration of the body. He says all of the members of the body are not the same. And then he, to get his point across, carries it to a ridiculous extreme. He says the eyes and the ears and the mouth and the nose do not reject their function and refuse to be a part of the body simply because they are not one of the other members of the body. And it is entirely true that God has appointed leadership in every church. The pastor, the staff, the deacons, the teachers, the workers all have a different function and the functions must be recognized and honored because God demands it. But that is not a matter of worth or value to God. 
the heroes of the faith, like the heroes of the body, Paul says, are the ones that are not so beautiful. The feet, for instance, are shod and often very dirty, but the body could not move without the feet. The hands often be called gnarled, become gnarled by wear and abused by use. And they are not as lovely as the eyes, but the body would be ineffective without the hands. And so it is in the church. Do not ever yield to satanic temptation to believe that you or anybody else is useless or ineffective as far as God is concerned. For just as the building Peter uses as an illustration, the temple was made up of different pieces of stone. If any one piece is out of its place, the building is damaged. And so it is in the church. If any one individual is not in the center of God's will, the work of God is hampered. Here is an eternal selection. God has called and appointed us by his own sovereign choice to be his people forever. And then in verses 11 and 12, here is an eternal struggle. The struggle that has gone on since Satan and his angels rebelled against God is the struggle for the souls of men. And Peter urges believers in every way that he knows how to resist the temptation to react to the world the way the world reacts to us. You know, it's sad, but it happens sometimes. Perhaps you have found yourself feeling this way. I have. Have you ever in reaction to something you read in the newspaper or perhaps a situation you knew personally where very wicked people, as far as you knew, were involved, people that rejected God and hated Him were punished. Have you ever found yourself saying, well, good, they finally went to hell? Peter wants us to guard against that attitude. Peter wants us to remember that God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Peter wants us to recall that day at Calvary when Jesus looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. Peter says, I urge you because you are aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior or your conduct, your conversation excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing they slander you for, they will see your good deeds, observe them, and glorify God. The reason God has left us here on this earth is that he might use us to touch the lives of people who are lost and on their way to hell. We need to remember that. We need to remember that whether our lives were ever characterized by outward evil or not, whether we were ever ungodly in a public way or not, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is God's purpose 
that by our godly conversation, the King James says, our way of life, our conduct before the world, we be such that the world looking at us would be unable honestly to criticize us as being ungodly. Now, criticism is bound to come. One thing I have grown rather weary through the years of hearing when criticism is repeated is that old devilish statement, where there's smoke, there's fire. Well, folks, I want to ask you a question. Was that true of Jesus Christ? There was never a man who ever lived who was more criticized and maligned and bad-mouthed than Jesus Christ. And when you hear criticism, when you hear negative things and what Matthew 18 calls a bad report which the scriptures condemn, I'll tell you where the problem is. The problem is in the mouth that is spewing those things. That's the problem. Jesus talks about us straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. Friends, the gnat is the fault of the other person. The camel is disobeying the direct commandment of God to keep your mouth shut when it comes to criticizing other people. Jesus said further, why do you try to take a splinter out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye? I've often wished I could see a cartoon of that. somebody trying to bend over bouncing their telephone pole off the ground while they look for a splinter in somebody's eye. You may know when you receive with joy or when you participate in that kind of activity that you are working 100% opposite of what God would have you to do. But I'm right. Who cares? God was right, but he let Jesus go to the cross anyway. Paul says in the book of Romans, not once but twice, at the beginning and at the end, that every man stands or falls to his own master, and the master is God. I have discovered long ago that the Holy Spirit of God points enough to my heart and my needs and my sins and my shortcomings that I don't have the time to be the watchdog and the policeman of the world. I have enough trouble with me. Peter says in these verses that, that criticism is going to come. That's normal. It's natural. A friend of mine gave me a little plaque and gave Mike one too. It's hanging on our walls. It says, to avoid criticism, do nothing, be nothing, say nothing. Criticism is going to come. There's no way around that. But what Peter says is you and I will become responsible for people going to hell if the criticism is justified. Oh, the fact that criticism will come is no reason for us to let down. What Peter says is when you are criticized, then learn how to live better. When you are criticized, then learn how to love better so that even the world, the ungodly world that criticizes you will see Jesus and be saved because of your life. Oh, how sad 
when we as Christians see the ungodly world and we wage a war against the world, we are sent on a, message, on a mission to wage war with the devil and to rescue the world from him. That is why I cringe and my flesh crawls when I read about some good, godly, fundamental, conservative Christian brother who has just eaten alive verbally and publicly some sinner who's lost in going to hell. Friends, I don't like immorality. I don't like pornography. I don't like liquor. I don't like all of those things, but I don't like the devil most of all. And the man that publishes the magazine, the guy that pushes the pills, they're not the enemy. They're a peon, a messenger, a dupe of the enemy. Now I recall how Jesus Christ was criticized most of all because of the kind of people he associated with. And Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous to repentance, but the ungodly. So Peter says, live before the world in such a way that the world will want to be saved because of your life. I have dealt in the ministry to youth with young people in other cities who were involved in taking and even in selling drugs. And on more than one occasion, I have found out that their fate more than likely has been sealed and they will be sent to a devil's hell because of the way Christians treated them. Remember who the enemy is. The enemy is the devil. We are mercenaries in this world sent by God to rescue the captives of the enemy. But I want you to point see here that Peter points out the war is within us. Have you ever heard somebody say or have you ever said to yourself, if I had known how many hassles I was going to have as a Christian, I don't know if I'd ever been saved? Well, you know, that is a very accurate assessment because until you get right with God and give your heart to Jesus, the devil's not going to mess with you. But once you belong to God, the devil will multiply a hundred times over every problem you've got. Now that's the bad news. But the good news is the battle's over and the victory's been won. The good news is you belong to Jesus and as long as you just sit back and surrender control of your life to him, the devil can't touch you. The war is within us. He says abstain from fleshly lust. He's not talking about gross immorality. This term fleshly lust, these two Greek words, refer to any kind of a desire in your heart that is against the will of God. He says they wage war against your soul. The word war is a Greek word that means the enemy has surrounded you and they have set up camp and they plan to stay until they get you. You know, sometimes the devil lulls us to sleep and we think he's leaving us alone. He never leaves us alone. 
But I'll tell you this, he'd rather have you asleep thinking he's leaving you alone than having you wide awake kicking him with both feet. We are involved in an eternal struggle for the wills and for the lives and the souls of men. The ancient writers of the New Testament era tell us that in the Roman Empire there were no Christians who were in jail for any reason except their faith in God. When they were brought up on charges, Rome finally decided that because they had rebelled against Judaism, which was an accepted religion in the Roman Empire, because they had pulled out of Judaism, now they would be held accountable to God are accountable to the government and put in jail. And what Peter is saying is if the world is going to persecute you, let it be the way they persecuted Daniel, of whom the scriptures say the enemies of Daniel decided the only way they were ever going to put him in jail was make a law against loving God. Peter says so live in such a way that the only thing they can slander you for is the fact that you love Jesus. He talks of good deeds, but not the good deeds of legalism. Rather, those motivated by love for God and love for souls. There is a strong missionary power in the goodness of a Christian. The mainspring of our lives is not to be a desire to do what we must do, but a love for God and the calling of God. He is the rock, Peter says, he is the reason we may safely live our lives abstaining from all that wars against our souls. He is the reason because we have touched him, we too have become lively stones built up in a spiritual house. And he is the reason that our commitment must be irrevocable. We are to refute the world by our righteousness. And we become partakers in his life as we choose to die with him so that we may live and reign with him. The cross, the cross which was the seed of death has become the source of life. He is the rock Either you make him the head of the corner or he will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter could never escape the fact that the only decision in life that made any difference was the decision of what to do with Jesus. And this morning the offer God makes is the offer of an eternal stone because you are an eternal selection involved in an eternal struggle for the souls of men. Now I ask you this morning, what is your relationship to him? This Independence Day, we want to be good citizens. I tell you that you can never be the right kind of citizen until you are at peace with God. What will you do with him? Will you make him the keystone of your arch or will you stumble over him into doom what God would have you do 
the mission and the message of the Bible, the mission and the message of the church, the invitation of God today is for you to give your heart to Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, it is for you to give your whole heart to him and serve him without holding anything back. Whatever God would have you do, today is God's day to do it. There'll never be a better day. Right now as the Holy Spirit of God moves among us, would you consider a yes in answer to his call to your life? May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have provided for us a sure foundation that cannot be removed in a building that cannot be destroyed because of Jesus. Now, Father, you make us what you want us to be. May our lives be built on the rock and may we be stones in a spiritual house of service to you. Lord, I just pray that today you would raise Jesus before the eyes of all the people, that they would find in him what they need in a world of uncertainty. He is immovable and indestructible. Lord, I just pray that you'd have your way in every heart, in every life. May souls be saved. May Christians be revived. Add to this body those new members that you would choose. I thank you right now for what you're going to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.